Welcome back to Living Our Breast Lives, a podcast not only about two women thriving with metastatic breast cancer, but also self-love, appreciation, and an overall awakening to this beautiful gift we call life. Each episode, we will be focusing on a different theme that will highlight each episode. Please don't forget to not only tune in, but to also subscribe and review. Welcome back, and thank you for tuning into our podcast, Living Our Breast Lives. My name is Ren, and with me is Kate. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, and also thank you for the great engagement, participation, and feedback on our last episode with Deltra. We had so much fun with her, and we're so thankful for this community. Absolutely. I could not have said it better myself. So today is a beautiful day. This week has been a beautiful week. So I would like to kick off this episode with some good news on behalf of both Kate and I. So Kate sits here celebrating her three-year NBC cancerversary. Congratulations to you, friend. Thank you so much. (laughs) And I sit here celebrating my three-year no evidence of disease anniversary. And um, for anyone listening who doesn't fully understand what that means, these milestones are just, they're beyond huge in metastatic breast cancer land. Some people with MBC aren't fortunate enough to see five years, let alone see three years with clear scans and no evidence of disease. And, you know, sharing and celebrating these milestones with our community is so important and so life-changing because it has the potential to instill hope in someone else who may be slowly giving up. So I don't necessarily want to take too much time away from today's episode, but I do want to share something briefly. Three long, long years ago, I remember sitting in my oncologist's office, anxiously awaiting those damn results. I had just had the recurrence after an entire year of early stage treatment, and I had only been on this new chemo immunotherapy cocktail for, I don't know, maybe three months So these results were quite literally about to seal my fate. I had just spent a few weeks in the hospital with a collapsed lung. I was sitting there with lung mets, breast tumors so large and aggressive, they took over the entirety of my right breast, essentially creating monstrous skin mets. And in walks my oncologist. She sits down and not only tells me that my scans are stable, but that the tumors everywhere within my body have dissipated entirely. And as a triple negative metastatic breast cancer patient, I have been fortunate enough to have this as my reality for the past three years. Am I a unicorn? Yeah, fuck yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm just eternally grateful in every sense of the word. But with that being said, I need those who are listening to just never give up hope. Because even though you may be struggling, keep putting up the good fight and know that this world is a better, better place with you in it. And listen, I believe your girl is still here for a reason. Do I know what that reason is? No, not yet. But I can honestly say that I sincerely never lost hope all throughout. I might have lost my strength, you know, during the multiple hospital stays and and sure, you know, times were just batshit crazy and hard, but I pick myself up after each hit, and I will continue to do so, regardless of what my future may hold. So with that being said, I mean, I love y'all. I appreciate this being such a safe space for me to share these just raw and, and just beautiful thoughts 
of mine. And again, congratulations to you, Kate. I am so beyond ecstatic for your three-year milestone. So cheers to many, many more years. I'm into that. And to just add to what Ren said, I think, you know, I remember sitting in a doctor's office and being told I had stage four. I had just had a breast exam a couple months earlier. So it was very aggressive. Um, and the average survival was three years. Um, and so to hit three years and to be NED um, and responding well to treatment, a little bit, um, much, well, a much different diagnosis than Ren. Um, as far as I have triple positive, but again, just more proof that statistics are statistics and every single one of you is not that. You're your own individual person and your cancer is unique from the next person, the next person, the next person. So um, don't, don't believe those. Um, don't let them define you. Let's just keep our, you know, our, our heads up and let's keep doing the damn thing. So again, congratulations to you, Kate. Alrighty, our episode went so well with Deltra last week that I am so excited for another kick-ass interview today. We are officially back for interview number two, but this time we have a different guest who I am so excited to meet for the very first time and of course have on our podcast today. Like last episode, we are continuing to share these remarkable stories, experiences, unbelievably different perspectives, important resources. But again, more importantly, as I said last time, this is not our story to tell, but it is a story that can help us with our goal of continuing to build community, continuing to raise each other up and continuing to live our best lives. So with that being said, Kate, I'm going to give you the floor and I'm going to have you introduce our wonderful guest for today. Thank you. So today's episode is featuring another NBC Thriver, the wonderful Cheryl, who is not only a family physician, but is also my friend. I met Cheryl, similarly to how I met Deltra, at an NBC retreat last year. And as I said last episode, we all showed up, 12 of us showed up not knowing who else was going to be there. It was such a cool experience in some of the people you had known from social media, I had known Deltra, um, but Cheryl, I had never, I didn't follow her. I did, I had never met her. And in just a short week, um, I can't tell you how close I felt to her. She is just this bubbly, positive, funny, funny person that just, she has that energy that draws you in. I could listen to Cheryl read a phone book. She is so funny. She is so fun. So I'm just really excited to have her on the pod, not only to share her wonderfulness with everyone, but to provide a very unique perspective of what happens when the physician becomes the patient. So Cheryl, I'd like to give you the floor first to share a little bit about who you are, not cancer related, but what is Cheryl about your family, your likes, your dislikes, everything? Tell us about you. Thank you so much, Kate and Ren, for allowing me to be here today. My name is Cheryl, and I am from Birmingham, Alabama. I am 40 years old, and I am married with three children. They are eight, six, and five years old. Um, my life beyond cancer includes, of course, motherhood and being a wife, 
but it also includes being a physician as well. Uh, at this time, due to my breast cancer diagnosis, my role as a physician has changed some, but my love for the field of healthcare has not wavered throughout the change in times. I love to dance, I love to sing, I love to write music, and as mentioned before, I love to laugh. I just love hearing that so much. And I really, I appreciate you sharing all of that with us because, you know, Cheryl, I said it last episode and I'll say it again today. We must change this narrative because we're more than our, our diagnosis. And we, we all must remain cognizant that we are whole ass people, regardless of the struggles that we face. And so I just love hearing the singing and the dancing and just like all the beautifulness that makes you you. So Cheryl, what inspired you to want to become a physician? I think I was born with just an empathetic spirit, first off. Uh, but um, one of the things that's pretty cool about my story of wanting to be a physician is that it started with watching the Cosby show. Um, after seeing Dr. Huxtable deliver babies, I thought that would be so cool to do. So initially I thought I would be an OBGYN. But once going through my medical courses and training, I realized that with my ADD and my ability to speak to people of different backgrounds, that I not only enjoy deliveries, but I love talking to patients and hearing their stories. And so I chose the path of family medicine, which would offer me the opportunity to deliver if I wanted to, but also see uh, kids as well as adults. We say it's from the womb to the tomb when you're a family medicine doctor. And that's what I appreciate most about being a family medicine physician. I that that is so cool from the womb to the tomb. That's awesome. So I would love for you to share if you could your diagnosis. So the background in whatever way you feel is meaningful or comfortable. But how did you discover your diagnosis? What's been your journey since then um, in the metastatic world? So I was diagnosed at 35 years of age with breast cancer. Uh, my story uh, is not unfamiliar to some people in that there are uh, many women who uh, in their postpartum period get diagnosed, and that was the case for me. So uh, my story is that about two weeks into uh, breastfeeding, after having my last child, I started to experience pain with breastfeeding, redness and swelling, which I presume was probably from a breast infection. As a physician, we know that breast infections happen and they hurt. And typically breast cancer doesn't hurt. So that was the last thing that was on my mind. But the pain was uh, debilitating enough that I kept on mentioning it to my husband. And so he encouraged me to talk to my OBGYN about it at my six-week postpartum visit. And I went into that visit with high hopes, not expecting much, but for her to tell me, here's some antibiotics and take these and go home. But after seeing my breast, my OB physician immediately said, you need to go downstairs and get an ultrasound. And that then was followed by a mammogram. And a few hours later, I was being called and told I needed to see a breast surgeon for a biopsy. So as we talk about anniversaries, I'm actually coming up on my five-year anniversary from having my diagnosis. Uh, my daughter just turned five. And as mentioned, it was six weeks later. So the day after Valentine's Day, I will be celebrating five years of having triple negative breast cancer. Of course, I felt so many emotions and so many feelings. I was first off postpartum and hormonal. And then to add on top of that, um, healthcare physicians, colleagues telling me that I needed to have further crap done to my body was kind of jarring and something that I didn't expect. As a physician, I think 
I was in this mind frame that I would always be taking care of others and didn't think that I would ever have a diagnosis like breast cancer. So can I ask, I wanted to, especially in the metastatic setting and any cancer patient, I think is familiar with that feeling. Deltra called it her dun 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 moment where it's like, you know, that narrator voice is like, everything was not okay. You know, like, how do you go from I just had this baby, I think I have a breast infection to in what seems like a a whirlwind, I can only speak to like knowing mine that it was just a matter of a week that I went from being fine to having this incurable diagnosis. And to have that on top of having a new baby and two other children, so three children, I can't imagine what that felt like. And I to have that rug pulled out in that way is just, that's crazy. Um, and just to, to clarify, you had been diagnosed with triple negative and then it had metastasized to your brain and that's what made you stage four? Yes, that's correct. I went through treatment for my initial triple negative breast cancer throughout 2018. And in 2019, about two weeks after I stopped taking my oral chemotherapy medication that was being utilized to hopefully prevent the cancer from returning, I started having what I thought was a sinus infection because I started having head pressure and some tooth pain, I thought. I even had a root canal done and I'd never had dental issues, but what do you know, what I thought was a dental issue turned out to be a brain cancer. Um, And so it's hard to describe all of the emotions that were being felt, but sometimes life prepares you in some ways for more trauma. And Kate, I know you and I have talked about traumatic events in the past and how we sometimes are more comedic because of the trauma we've experienced. So in some ways, it's hard for me to even delve through those feelings I had and emotions I experienced when I was first diagnosed because I was hormonal. But also I had my past experiences of having to go through tough medical training. And so I was used to sleepless hours and not eating. And so even when uh, my oncologist started to mention some of what I would experience with chemotherapy treatments, I kind of laughed it off because I was already experiencing fatigue. I'd already had nausea throughout the pregnancy. (laughs) So um, in some ways, I was uh, sort of prepared for what was to come, but in, in other ways not. I mean, as a physician, you're not really thinking about being on the other end of, of things. First, I think it is so important to acknowledge that you are approaching your five-year cancerversary because... That is huge. Congratulations. Um, Like, wow. (laughs) You kind of just like said it like so nonchalantly. And I'm sitting over here like I have triple negative metastatic breast cancer, just like Cheryl does. And she's sitting here going on five years with a brain metastasis. Like you are truly inspirational. I, you know, I wish I had like a, a bottle of champagne right now just to like spew everywhere because that is huge. So go you, go you. Popping bottles. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really grateful for the love that I've been surrounded in. And I think love is truly healing. And it's something that I've carried forward, not only through my practice, but I carry that forward through being the patient that love could help me get through things, including tough times. So I just really have to give credit as well, not only 
uh, to myself, I give myself a little credit for making it through this far, but <laughs> I have to also uh, be thankful for the people in my life that have really supported me and helped me through uh, trauma. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, girl, you need all the, like, you take all that credit because I cannot wait to be in that seat two years from now and say, like, I'm a, you know, triple negative breast cancer survivor sitting here, you know, five years later. So it's just so nice to hear. And between meeting you and meeting Deltra, both of you thriving with triple negative breast cancer. I mean, we all know the doom and gloom that surrounds the triple neg diagnosis and just the awful dreaded statistics. And so there again, and I said this last episode, there's just like this overall sense of comfort and calmness when I am talking to another thriver that is sitting here kicking ass, doing the damn thing with the same subtype as me. So thank you for providing that comfort. Well, you're right. I think the comfort spreads over to other people. I can recall having patients in my practice that I would see maybe for common colds and uh, family medicine issues, whether it be breaks and things like that. But many times you have patients that have cancer as well. And one of the things that I learned from my patients is that they handle their cancer diagnosis one of two ways, and they could either be positive throughout it or negative. And through my observation of watching those patients, those that were more positive seemed to have a better outcome. But um, you're right in that um, hopefully we help each other through these stories, because if you go online and research things, you can uh, oftentimes be let down and uh, be left with more worries than what you already have with your diagnosis. So I'm just glad to be in your presence as well. Yes, you're going to be one of those pillars that Kate always talks about. When you're first diagnosed, you go on social media and you look for those pillars, those people that have been thriving and surviving with this disease for so long. And so as of right now, you are one of those people for me. So you have just become a part of my story there, Cheryl. So I, I appreciate you for that. <laughs> Thank you. I have to give credit to Kate as well, though. Um, the retreat that we attended was actually my first time coming out, I'd say. <laughs> um, working in the healthcare field, I was really busy with my job and then, of course, having kids and home life to attend to. So uh, I wasn't like many people that go online and find support groups. Um, the retreat that I attended was really my first encounter with people that were like me and going through similar things. And it was so comforting to know that I'm not alone in this and that there are some great stories of people that are thriving and living and they're happy and they can still find joy in life despite such a dire diagnosis. And I, I agree with you. There are actual studies out there that do say that, you know, people with more of a positive attitude in life do tend to do better. And so I've read up on studies on that and it's unbelievable that you've seen it firsthand in your line of work. Like you've had actual patients and like you said, they can handle their situation in one of two ways and you've seen both. And so transitioning into you being a doctor, that must have been difficult having to switch roles from doctor to patient because I mean, that is so wildly interesting to me because it's one thing experiencing something like that from a patient's point of view, but to experience it from a doctor's standpoint, that almost takes it to a whole other level. It's almost like 
you know so much, right, from all your years in medical school and all just your medical experience in general. So I imagine the wealth of knowledge that you had at your fingertips, maybe the best of both worlds, maybe helped you essentially, but also could have weighed on you heavily. So I'd first like to ask you about your experience navigating that initial MBC diagnosis and treatment, both as the patient and the physician. And just knowing what that experience was like for you and how you were able to turn off that medical side of your brain and cater more towards the vulnerable, scared person just diagnosed with MBC. Well, I'll have to be honest in that I don't think I navigated things well initially. Um, Now, before my metastatic diagnosis, of course, it was just a triple negative breast cancer diagnosis. And as mentioned, with it being my after my six week postpartum visit, I was expecting to return to work right after that. And we, of course, my family, we had financial strains at the time and expected that I would return to work to uh, improve our financial situation. But um, after my breast cancer diagnosis, I had to take a little bit more time off before returning to work, but did decide to be steadfast about working even though I was going through chemo, which was very interesting. (laughs) Um, As a family medicine physician, we're typically given about 15 minutes for follow-up appointments. And most times I have lovely patients that have more needs than what 15 minutes allows for. And so I was used to having visits that took 30 minutes or more and sometimes not eating lunch and neglecting myself. And after receiving my breast cancer diagnosis, I realized that I couldn't do that as much, but I still was not able to uh, very well manage being a physician and uh, a breast cancer patient. And I made a decision to actually not uh, inform many people of my diagnosis and particularly not inform my patients of my diagnosis because our appointment times already took so long and my pa- my patients care so much about me that they want to ask questions about me. And they already had questions about my newborn baby. <laughs> and so um, I actually made a decision to try to cover up my cancer diagnosis and wear scarves and in some ways that was good and bad. Um, I, I think in some ways it was good in that I could go through my day without uh, those extra questions, but there were some days where I was really struggling. I remember one day in particular where my hair fell out while I was in clinic and I just had to break down and cry. And it was something that I wasn't trying to do, obviously, I, as mentioned, try to stay positive, but I just broke down um, and had to take some time for myself. And I called one of my friends and let it out and sent her a picture of my dreadlocks falling out. (laughs) Um, And after crying with her for a moment, I said, okay, I've got to get back. I've got to finish doing this shit. (laughs) I've got to get back to work. Uh, In some ways uh, that was unfortunate that I couldn't take time for myself, but um, distractions are sometimes good when you go through a diagnosis like this too. I will say that after I received my metastatic diagnosis in 2019, my oncologist flat out told me, you need to sit your tail down and stop working and take care of yourself. And that was something that was very difficult for me because so much of who I was was wrapped up in my title of being a physician. 
I had my first panic attack after finding out that I would no longer be able to um, see my patients uh, in the capacity of as their primary physician. And so uh, I've been on the end of diagnosing anxiety <laughs> and realized, oh, this is a panic attack. I, I, I've read about this. I've studied this. <laughs> this does not feel good. <laughs> 10, 10 would not recommend. <laughs> and I think to that point, I think that's really key, Cheryl, because you and I had talked about that in Tennessee, that both of us worked through that initial phase, um, you know, of, of treatment. And I, I worked, you know, it was during the pandemic. Um, I worked at home and not many people, I didn't tell many people, um, I didn't want people to treat me differently. I didn't want if I did a bad job for it to be like, oh, well, she has cancer. Um, so, you know, be nice. <laughs> you know, I wanted to just be the same worker. Very few people knew about it. Um, and it, for me, it gave me an identity outside of cancer. And so I remember a moment where I, something triggered me too, and I lost it. And it was so hard because in that moment, it felt like you almost had to accept that this is what's happening in your life. And up to that point, I kind of was able to pack it in a nice box and put it on a shelf to deal with when I felt like it, you know, whether that was at treatment or after work. But to have something happen while you're working um, kind of makes you, I don't know, it kind of made it like forces you to accept that like this is actually happening. And that breakdown moment for me was pivotal in acknowledging that like I, this is part of my life. I will have to figure out how to balance it. That's such a great point. Uh, I'm, I'm still learning about how to take better care of myself while caring for others which is very difficult to do um, when, as mentioned, I've wanted to be a physician since four years old. And that's just a part of what you do as a physician is you care for others and you deny yourself of uh, certain needs for the good of others. Um, and so I'm still not quite <laughs> all the way um, conclusive on what's next for my life, but I'm grateful that I'm learning a little bit more about advocacy as it relates to having metastatic breast cancer, and I can hopefully still uh, be an influence in positive ways for people. Well, on behalf of both Kate and I, I mean, you are definitely doing a wonderful job, and we appreciate you being here. Did you feel at the time of your initial diagnosis, did being a physician, do you feel like it, the overall experience made it harder or easier for you? I feel like being a physician made things in some ways easier for me in that I have the medical background to understand some of the processes that were to occur. So although there was still some fear regarding chemotherapy and radiation, I at least knew what the effects would be. And I was already kind of prepared for the fact that it was going to suck. It was going to hurt. I was going to be tired. All of the things that were kind of mentioned in terms of what to expect, I knew they would occur. But feeling them is a totally different thing. The fatigue that you experience with chemotherapy is indescribable, and it's not like the same fatigue you experience during pregnancy. But for me, I'm not sure whether or not uh, my fatigue was just compounded because I just had a baby or whether it was just all related to 
cancer treatments. But I think in my case, it was sort of an all the above thing, motherhood, recent pregnancy and treatments. So I'm just grateful to be here and not be all the way crazy, just a little bit. So things were harder in that I know numbers and I know that without even knowing the exact percentages, I knew that having breast cancer by itself was bad enough. But then after finding out that I had triple negative breast cancer and I'm a black female and young, I was scared shitless. (laughs) I mean, there's no way to really describe the fear that goes into knowing what cancer can entail. And also with being a family medicine physician, I've been there and held people's hands as they passed away from chronic illnesses. And I've seen people uh, with cancer and taking care of people with cancer. And so all of those thoughts ran through my mind in terms of what my process could be like. Uh, And so that fear um, in some ways was uh, probably more than um, someone who's not in the healthcare profession would have been. Um, But in, in, in other ways, I guess I was in some ways prepared for the worst. (laughs) Um, I think the three of us can probably agree once you get a diagnosis such as the one we have, you kind of are prepared for it all. And even though your family members and friends might not be ready for for your passing or for bad things to happen, you put on your big girl panties and get ready for anything that may occur. Um, So I put on my big girl panties and my white coat for what I was about to undertake. And um, the other thing, too, is that with being a physician, I could speak with my specialist in ways that some other people can't. One of my friends uh, is a physician as well. Her name is Dr. Erica Stringer-Reeser. And after I received my diagnosis, I immediately called her and she came by my house and gave me a physical exam and told me what would be uh, awaiting me on my cancer journey since she's an oncologist also. So, um, yeah, I was given facts in the raw because I am a physician. So there wasn't much handholding needed for me. Um, and maybe there were less tears in some ways just because I am a physician. I'm not so sure. That is so unbelievably interesting to me, just the complete different perspectives. Um, and it, it is true. I mean, everybody that we have on this podcast or just any other thriver that I talk to that's a patient they always say the same thing of cancer was not at the forefront. It's like when you are diagnosed, you are diving into the unknown. And maybe in some cases that's easier because you don't know what's to come. You don't have the background knowledge. But for somebody like you who was a physician, I could imagine how much harder that must have been having all of that background knowledge. And like you said, holding the hands of patients that had passed due to chronic illness. So it really is an extreme, drastic, different perspective and very eye-opening, I must say. Um, Last episode with Deltra, we discussed that more often than not, oncologists will tend to look at their patients more as a number than anything else. They will, you know, potentially look at our tumor markers, our lab works, protocols, but forget that there are other contributing factors stressing out their patients, whether that's financial burdens, relationship stress, gosh, uh, depression, anxiety, just overall hardships with like family dynamics. 
Um, I could go on and on. And there's obviously so much more that meets the eye in a situation as complex as a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. So with that being said, did your perspective change on anything once you were the patient? That's such a great question. And one of the things I've been pondering on frequently is the fact that I feel like for me, one of the major areas uh, of weakness or difficulty has been financial. Uh, And it's hard for me to say that just because I think I had this idea that once I became a physician, uh, troubles were over, specifically as it relates to finances, that I'd be able to um, live the life I always dreamed of. And of course, I didn't go into being a physician uh, for financial reasons. I really went into it for because of the heart I have for people and science and all kinds of quirky stuff. <laughs> but um, financially, I, I expected to be okay for the rest of my life, but uh, life doesn't go like that. I, I, I think I have uh, more of an understanding of how uh, patients would be in my office and explain that maybe they couldn't afford certain medications because of the cost of them or um, not being able to make it to certain recommended therapy sessions or treatments because of financial strains or like you mentioned, relationships matter. So, you know, there are times where I can't even make it to certain appointments because I have to pick up my kids for school (laughs) or maybe they have a field trip and I need to reschedule an appointment because it's important for me to spend as much quality time with my kids as I can too. So that's just one area that stands out. There are so many areas that we could talk about, but um, I'm trying to rest in the fact that sometimes you can't just afford to do everything you want to do. And sometimes you have to adjust. And it's not just sometimes, it's most of the time once you have breast cancer. And um, yeah, I'm just going to keep on living and rock it out, work it out, figure it out. Um, but definitely financially, things um, have changed for sure. I think that's so such an important thing to highlight that the financial toxicity of, um, you know, any chronic condition, but especially, you know, a cancer, metastatic breast cancer. Um, and then, you know, even further, a triple negative, where a lot of the therapies that are coming out, um, we talk about a lot with triple negative, there's not a lot of options. Um, that are not chemo, like IV chemo. Um, But those options are really, really new. And with that um, comes the expected American healthcare system issue of they're also very, very expensive. And so I think it's important for people to talk about that, to talk about that there is a financial toxicity component that affects the majority of patients where they're having to hope that things are covered by insurance, but even with insurance, your out-of-pocket max can be so expensive. And there's drug parity issues of the way that your insurance is set up, where IV chemo is considered medical, but oral chemo is considered a prescription. And you could have two different out-of-pocket maxes. And so just having insurance is not always the answer because it's shit's expensive. Um, So I think that's important to talk about and to acknowledge that doctors spend 
a huge part of their life in school, learning these things, giving up all the things in your 20s and 30s in order to set yourself up to be a doctor, to have that dream. And part of that is, you know, some semblance of financial stability. And so to have that all ripped out, and I can't imagine, and I applaud you for just being able to acknowledge like things are different, but I don't, I think it would be short sighted to not acknowledge that Cheryl gave up a huge part of her life to follow a dream that in an instant is not exactly what she thought anymore. And it, that ripple goes far beyond just the diagnosis. It impacts everything. And that's huge. It's so true. Um, I don't know how to do hair or have another skill behind caring for people and knowing medicine and how to treat people in ways that are hopefully helpful beyond just the 15 to 30 minute appointment that they have with me. And so, uh, yeah, drastic changes in a short amount of time while also raising children and trying to be a good spouse and friend. It's hard. I mean, there are times when I have to figure out how to love on people in ways that aren't financial when maybe in the past it was easier to love on people financially. That's a good point. I think it's hard. It's hard when you expect something to be a certain way and everything's different and it it's easier said than done. And I think just like everything with this diagnosis, that grief comes in waves that I know for me, some days it's easier to acknowledge that my life is different than what I thought it would be. Um, and then other days I'm really upset that this is my life and it's it's hard and there's certain things that are triggering that make certain days harder. And, you know, to your point earlier, I think it's important to acknowledge that being positive is so important um, and approaching things positively. But that doesn't mean you're positive all the time. It just means you can have an adult tantrum. I have them probably weekly where this sucks. I don't like that this is my life. You just can't unpack and live there. You got to put on your big girl panties and it's it's easier to move on when you can not dwell on the what ifs, but it's okay if those what ifs come in, you know, it's the waves of grief and that's normal. And it's interesting because before cancer, I could go on sites like Facebook and just post about my day and nothing seemed to be related to cancer. But now, even if it's my daughter's birthday or even if I'm just going out for a great meal. It's related to the fact that I have cancer. I'm just happy to be alive or whatever I'm doing is just so monumental now because of my diagnosis. And I don't know how much I bother people with my posts that say I'm doing this and I have cancer, but it's my daily life. I, I, I can't get around it. I always say to that because I think we've all encountered or heard through the grapevine or even had family members who don't understand why we post about something or why do you only post about cancer? Why do you, everything's tied to cancer. And it's that whole, like, I, there's a, a famous like TikTok where the girl's like, imagine how tired we are of it. Imagine how, like, if you're tired of it, try living it. Like if you, the amount that I post about cancer is a very tiny percentage of how much it actually takes up in my life and how miraculous it is to be here. Um, I think all of us, to go back to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, every single one of us 
has outlived what statistics said. And you should never shut up about that because we all know how desperate it felt in those initial months and how the word terminal is just at the forefront of your mind and you're in your 30s wondering about things that you thought you were going to have to worry about in your 80s and 90s. Um, about how much life you had and how to cross things off your bucket list. And yeah, you should never stop talking about it because there is somebody out there right now who know who is in those first few months and wondering how this became their life and looking for people like you, Cheryl, or like Ren or like I that that did it, that walked through that hell. And it's not guaranteed that we'll be good forever or even the next scan, but we're good right now. And we outlived what we were told. And so we should never stop talking about that. Amen to that. No, we need to keep talking the talk. We must. So there was one of those moments from Deltra's interview that really stopped me in my tracks. Um, And I wanted to just kind of transition into that. She had said that she never knew a lot about her family history because of the secrecy surrounding health and diagnosis. It was a really like eye-opening moment for me because it's it's highly different from what I'm used to. It you know it, it just kind of stopped me in my tracks and like made me aware of just like the multitude of cultural differences that exist in the world, and it made me stop and think like, all right, I need to be more conscientious and mindful of things like this moving forward because it's not a one-size-fits-all community. We can't just expect everyone's life experiences. Um, culture, traditions, customs, beliefs, or whatever, you know, to look like ours. We, we, you know, we just can't. And so had you seen or experienced that? Yes, I have. And uh, I'm so glad you brought up this question. One of the things that I emphasized in my practice of family medicine was asking patients about their family medical history. And particularly because I did have a large population of Black patients and minority patients, I would emphasize the importance of family medical history just because uh, not only because I'm Black, but also because I'm a physician. I know that's something that we as a community don't often talk about. It's important to note that not one size fits all as it relates to Black people. So we can talk about commonalities, but I'd like to preface this by saying that we're not all the same. But many times in my practice, I will say that my Black patients may not know their family history. For things as important as diabetes, which can be um, passed down genetically or be related to just family traditions and habits. So Cheryl, with that, um, I appreciate too that no one is the same as the next person that is, you know, the same race as them or um, has the same culture as them. But with that and having to have those conversations, has it been challenging for you to have those if they weren't previously had in your within your family? I know my family is the opposite. We we know everything. We know about the mole that great aunt Sally had removed, you know, when she was twenty five. Like we talk about everything. Um, but was it challenging for you to to have to have those conversations or to continue to? Because you are such an advocate and you've really stepped into this role of sharing. Is it? Has that been a challenge for you to kind of go against that? It really hasn't been a challenge in that uh, you've met my parents. They're they're pretty open and 
conversational. So my parents didn't have an issue with mentioning family history. Um, it was hard for them to fill in some of the uh, areas of our family history just because family members don't talk too much. But um, for me and my immediate family, we don't have that problem of talking about family history. But even some of the uh, family members that were mentioned to me that have had cancer, they haven't mentioned it to me. They've never talked about it. Um, and and one thing I think is, is pretty cool to mention is that um, both of my uh, grandmothers lived past 100 years old. Um, but with that, uh, I think I had this idea that uh, that would be my story as well. Good genes. <laughs> um, and maybe it still will be. Um, but I, I think that too kind of has swayed some of us from delving into what may be wrong with us, just because a lot of times as black folks, we just keep it moving and keep pushing forward. So um, I'm a physician who's learned through training to just move forward and deny yourself in some ways. But then also being a black woman, I put myself on the back burner for uh, for other reasons as well. And so um, I think that too crosses over into how many um, of us as black people go on throughout our lives without wanting to ask questions as it relates to things that may be more negative or at least appear to be negative. Um, but family history is so important and can can help us with uh, prevention and cure of so many conditions. I could not agree more. I've had all of my younger sisters um, all get their genetic testing. I'm a huge advocate for it. Um, I actually, when I had my genetic testing, I was BRCA negative, but I had a mutation. It was called check two mutation. And I always wondered about that mutation. And I have, let's see, my mom and two of my younger sisters are BRCA positive. And then I have another sister who's BRCA negative, like me. And it's so just crazy to just have all of these different biological makeups and have all of these mutations and all of these different things just running rampant in our bodies. And so like, um, but I do feel like knowing my family history prior helped me a lot. Like I knew both my grandmas, both my aunts. It was almost like I knew it was coming. I just didn't know when. I didn't know it would be this early and this severe. I certainly didn't know it was going to metastasize um, as quickly as it did. But I do feel like having that background knowledge and having that in my pocket was super helpful when I was first diagnosed. And I think too, knowing um, what I know now one of my biggest, not regrets, um, but one of the things I wish I had known is to Ren's point there, when you have a diagnosis, you should know that insurance is required to cover certain testing and that there's testing they can do on um, your tumor biopsies that will let them know, like there's certain classes of drugs that only work if you have certain mutations or if you're, the cancer cells behave in a certain way. But in order to know if you have that, you have to have a biopsy done to test for that. And because I responded very well in my treatment, that wasn't done. So there's a class of drugs that may work for me, but it wouldn't, I wouldn't know until there's a recurrence or actual tissue that they could test. So my PSA to people listening is, you're newly diagnosed if you have tumors that can be biopsied know your rights what your insurance is required to cover and know that there are certain tests that you should ask for um to know your tumor biology okay so 
into our next question. Um, Cheryl, I know you touched on it earlier, but when I was in San Antonio with you, I was really lucky to meet two of the other um, Black women physicians that you have kind of advocated with that helped you lift you up when you were going through this, um, Dr. Gaffney and Dr. Stringer Reeser. Um, they do so much work to bring awareness um, to cancer screening, treatment, research for Black patients. Can you share with the listeners why improving cancer care in the Black community is so important and why we all need to, to highlight that sect of our community? Well, um, one of the main reasons why catering to the black community is important is because I'm in it and you should care about me. (laughs) But beyond that, there's a wealth of knowledge that can be obtained from uh, acknowledging and uplifting the voice of black people. We're often not heard and unseen, but at the same time, we're utilized for our attributes our abilities to keep homes and cook and take care of people and be loving and empathetic. And so it's an interesting dynamic in that there's a quote that Malcolm X said, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, but he said the most disrespected person is the black woman. And how is that when we know the power that lies within black women Uh, and the idea that we neglect such a huge portion of our support system for this country is very interesting to me. Thank you so much for that. I think um, that for the listeners who also have already heard Deltra's interview, um, this is very similar to what Deltra said, that um, Black women are the caretakers, the they take care of the family, the food, the kids, the, they are the the glue in their communities. And so when they're dealing with this diagnosis, unlike in other communities, it's not always that someone else is stepping in or that the system for which they're seeking care from is built for them. Deltra spoke about going to a larger cancer center and feeling like a number and feeling like they just immediately wanted her to join a trial, which has its own negative connotation in the Black community that you would just suggest that you join a medical trial without understanding um, historically that it doesn't always seem like a safe thing to do and it doesn't feel like that physician was caring for you and that that was their first suggestion is that you jump into a clinical trial without acknowledging that you're the caretaker in your family, that you might not have child care to do that, that you might not have home care if that trial drug makes you incredibly ill or takes you out of your other role. Many Black women, as you mentioned, are so used to being the caregivers, the providers, the strong person for their family. And I know in my case, the last thing that I wanted to do was speak up for myself in a way that may have seemed like I was complaining too much or not focused on the task at hand. And that related to my job as well. I mean, there's a lot that I think I dealt with with my work as a primary physician where I probably should have spoken up for myself more being a woman and a black woman. And um, I didn't do that. And so I'm glad that we're having these conversations. And I'm grateful for um, black women in my life, particularly black women physicians 
that really surrounded me in so much love. I can't even explain to you all how much black women physicians helped me and my family when I was initially diagnosed with breast cancer, and they still do. Dr. Erica Stringer-Reeser, my friend, she's just Erica to me, but um, Erica um, was, like I said, the first person I called when I got my diagnosis, and she really just stood in the gap for me, and she was the strong person that I needed that would speak up for me. And I think in that way, my experience as a patient is different because I do have the support of other female physicians that are in the field to look out for me. So I may not have had some of the same issues with um, discrimination that some faced, but I definitely can relate to discrimination and not feeling like your voice is heard or not feeling like you have the ability to raise your voice in certain situations because of being uh, Black, but also a woman. There were two questions left. So we wanted to get into a little bit about just the numbers and clinical trials. And not to mention, Deltra also talked about touch and just how much it made her feel more comfortable with initially looking into clinical trials because she was super skeptical of it. Because they have that when we trial campaign. And I think that's really important to keep highlighting because that whole campaign is about getting the black community involved in trials and education and um, Deltra mentioned it. I have been reading up on that campaign and I think that this, it would be good to relink them. And then she also just talked about those barriers. Um, We kind of touched upon it, like whether it's mistrust, you know, with the lack of, I guess, information on the clinical trials or even just like the distrust with the medical professionals. Um, She spoke about like the financial burden the childcare hardships, the... She talked about historically, she's like, when the doctor's like, you can join my trial. She's like, my ancestors were getting upset. She's like, do not suggest that I join a trial. (laughs) It was so funny. Yeah, she even said just like, even as far as like transportation, like getting to and from, like there just are a lot of barriers. For me, it's like, I feel like if there were more logical resources and there were more of a like less assumptions and more of that, like, let's just, when it's readily available, let's, you know, put it out there. I think that that would really help to close some of these gaps within clinical trials and those numbers and those outcomes. Well, my experience is that um, my, my friend and colleague, Dr. Erica Stringer-Reeser, encouraged me to join the iSpy2 trial. Um, of course, having triple negative breast cancer, there aren't many treatment options out there. And so, um, being a black woman, I was a little bit skeptical about joining a trial, but also because I'm a physician, um, I do understand that, um, trials aren't done the same way they will have been done in the past. And, um, there's more, uh, protocol involved that allows for there to be less experimentation on people, particularly black people. Um, and I'll say this also, when I did the trial, um, I had to discontinue the trial because my cancer was not responsive to uh, IV chemo. And so even despite that, I still encourage people to uh, consider trials just because even though it wasn't helpful for me, there's hope that with the trial, there's more information that can be helpful to others. Even with an answer of, no, this didn't work for Cheryl, that then may be helpful to someone else to find another treatment option. And so I definitely encourage people to consider trials, particularly Black folks, because we need to know more 
um, not only about our own personal history, but know about how medications and treatments are effective for us. And along with that, it's unfortunate that not enough research goes to stage four breast cancer, just because you would think that if you can cure some of the worst cancers, you could cure some of the other ones too. Just like if you could cure me, Cheryl, the black physician with stage four triple negative breast cancer that went to her brain, then hey, there may be hope for everyone. We say that so often that it's so backwards that we as stage four patients are testing drugs on a whim because we're out of other options. You know, in the 80s, it was the drug that I'm on. It was Herceptin. And it was people who had nothing. It was a shot in the dark. Let's try and treat this. At the time, HER2 disease was the worst because there was nothing and it's so, so aggressive. And there's nothing to they knew to turn off that HER2 amplification. So Herceptin was this shot in the dark that people were dying. And it was just like, do you want to try it? And that's so backwards because if it works for us, it will work for early stage. If we understand what makes something cancer metastasize quickly or what makes something respond or not respond, it will help everybody behind us in early stage. But the fact that there's all this funding going to early stage and we're those kind of guinea pigs for testing that stuff. And if it works, that's great. Like, congratulations. But it should be the other focus. No one has to die of this. But let's start with the people who will die because stage four is the only breast cancer that kills. So let's figure out what works for us because it will help. So my, I guess my my final question before we close up is, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Advice, suggestions, experiences, anything at all that you want to just leave out on the table for our listeners? One of the first things that comes to my mind truly is that I miss my patients and I need them to know that. Um, most days I think about them and I, I've, I've learned to hold back tears throughout my time of being a physician, but one of the sensitive spots for me is talking about my patients that I had to leave so abruptly once I got my diagnosis. So if any of my patients, my former patients hear this, I want them to know that I still love them and I think about them and I appreciate their support. Oh, that makes me tear up. I think knowing you, Cheryl, just as a friend, I I will speak for them in knowing that they miss you because you are that person that is so kind and empathetic. I can't imagine having a doctor like you. Um, you are the one of the kindest people I've ever encountered. Your spirit is just one that draws people in and you make them feel so seen and so loved. So I know that your patients miss you. Um, and that's just, that's a fact because you are just amazing. Yeah. And I know firsthand what it's like to leave behind something you love. Um, I was an educator for many, many years. And when I was diagnosed metastatic, I obviously couldn't handle having treatment every two weeks and working, you know, a nine to five in the classroom. But there are days where I miss my students so much. I really do. I just miss the passion behind teaching, but really just the rapport and those relationships between me and those kiddos. Um, so I know firsthand what it's like to just kind of have that career ripped out in front of you. But Cheryl, we got to give ourselves grace, right? Like we're doing a kick-ass job and we're making the best of our situation. And that's what I've told myself for all these years. 
And that's why we need research. That's why we need more drugs. We need to get to a place where this is like diabetes, where it's a chronic condition that with the right management, you can live a fairly normal life. You could go back to being a teacher or a doctor or get that control back to where this is a part of your life. But unfortunately for so many of us, metastatic breast cancer, we do learn to balance it, but it takes up a lot of space. Um, and so that's why research is important. And I'm I'm putting it out there that this is why we we advocate. This is why we demand change and funding so that, you know, Ren, Cheryl, myself, everyone who's had to give up something that was a passion, a dream, a love can get that back, that this is not permanent, that there are things that can change. There's treatments that can make this easier to live with because um, the medical community is missing out by not having Cheryl as a provider. The education community is missing out by not having Ren as a teacher. These are people who are making differences, and that's why this is important. There's a part of me that's like, wow, three years, no evidence of disease. Maybe that will turn into four. Maybe that will turn into five. Maybe, hell, that will turn into 10. But that's also giving up my career and being out of the classroom. So it's like I'm winning, but I, like you said, I had to give up something that was very important to me. And so it's this just life of balancing the wins with the losses. And I, you know, honestly, that is just metastatic breast cancer to a T. So Cheryl, we are so appreciative of you taking the time to come and join us on today's episode. You are truly sensational <laughs> and you're not afraid to be who you are. I've just met you for the past hour and a half. And I'm like, I, I want to develop a relationship outside of this podcast with you because you are so freaking cool. On behalf of both Kate and I, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you and you are a kick-ass thriver. And congratulations again on your five-year cancerversary. Thank you so much and happy Black History Month also. Let's celebrate. Yes. Here's to five more, to 10 more, to 15 more. Give those babies a hug for me. I can't wait to see Rodney's karate moves next time. And also, they're right here. On this they're right day, here. On yes. this day, we're doing Black History Month. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's a great way and to end. I mean, Rodney's cool. <laughs> Kids, so life cute. continues. Life continues. Yeah. <laughs> The fact that they remained quiet for a whole hour and a half, they deserve like a million gold stars. <laughs> All right, we are good to go. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast, Living Our Breast Lives. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at Living Our Breast Lives, where we will share podcast updates, special dates, educational resources, and of course, health updates for those following our MBC journeys. Have questions, comments, or anything else you would like answered on our podcast? Send us a message on Instagram. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And as always, choose kindness. Someone may look fine on the outside, but you never know who's actually struggling on the inside. Until next time, don't forget to live your breast lives. Yeah.